0: As you know, I like to start these sermon times with um some stupid joke or story or connection like last week when I forced Barry to demonstrate how little he knows about baking <laughs> because he thought he was talking about bacon. I listened to that back a couple times. Uh, <laughs> I listened to that back a couple times last week and it, it was hilarious. It was so funny. Um <laughs> and so I like to start with something that that gets us um, prepared for the message in a lighthearted way or in a personal way. But um, today, I, I'm doing something a little different, uh, kind of the opposite of something lighthearted. Without a doubt, one of the most significant political movements of the 20th century, one which would be will be studied endlessly for centuries to come, one which serves as the de facto historical example of Western society needing to learn from her past in order to avoid making the same horrendous mistakes, one which has become synonymous with this sort of insidious institutional evil. You can probably guess which governmental party and tyrannical leader I'm thinking of, and that would be, what, the Nazis, Hitler. There are many other names that invoked a similar sort of dread in the 20th century. You can think of Stalin's communist Russia, Pol Pot's... Khmer Rouge, what we call Cambodia today, Mussolini's fascist Italy, Idi Amin's brutal dictatorship in Uganda, Saddam Hussein's Sunni Muslim presidency of Iraq. You may not know what these men did, but you probably have heard their names and connect them to evil doing, and genocide and just murder on a mass institutional level. Sadly, the list could go on and on and on as well. Um, And if you ask First Nations people in Canada or African-Americans in the southern states, you could add a few North American leaders to that list of 20th century tyrants as well. But none of these names draws our attention, our curiosity, and our revulsion, quite like the Nazis. To speak Hitler's name is to speak of some twisted and demented display of power. He rose to power through speeches that played off of and fed into the simmering anger and scapegoating tendencies of a defeated German people, post-First World War, defeated German people. He demonstrated his power through ever-escalating violence towards dissidents, rivals, uh, neighboring nations, and most of all, the easy targets, famously the Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, and other fringe groups targeted as fuel for a nationalistic engine obsessed with some twisted sense of what purity is. And he fortified his power by attempting to burn away that which might weaken his authority, whether it was the burning of ideas and philosophies he strove to censor, as with the infamous book burnings of 1933, or whether it was the burning of actual human beings who manifested all that he felt was weak, wrong, or inferior in the world that he imagined through the furnaces of camps across north-central Europe. Um. Have any of you ever been to a concentration camp, traveled to Europe and been to one? I have. um, Been to Auschwitz. It was one of the most powerful days of my life. To stand in that gas chamber and see those furnaces and the collapsed ruins of the barracks, lots of them are still standing. It's a, a powerful place. But we are fascinated by Hitler because his name, just to say his name, is to invoke a case study in power run amok, right? Well, in our passage today, Acts nineteen, we have a contrasting image to this evil, twisted sort of human power, as represented by the name Hitler. Through the life of Paul the Apostle, we see the true power in the in the name of Jesus Christ. Surrounding Paul are many of the exact same factors that led Hitler's led to Hitler's rise in prominence and power. Um, so. In both Hitler and both Paul, we see these things. We see passionate speeches. We see a focus on the weak and the marginalized. We see acts of violence and even a burning of literature in both Nazi Germany and in our passage today. But I'm not comparing them. I'm contrasting them. The two types of power couldn't be more vastly different from each other. They may have similar features, like we look at here, but the power at work in Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany nearly a century ago looks nothing at all like the power at work through Paul the Apostle in 1st century Ephesus. Or, for that matter, like the power alive in us today in 21st century Canada. So, we're going to read Acts 19 verses 8 to 22 in chunks. And we are going to contrast these two types of power. The worst of the kingdom of men and the best of the kingdom of God. So we'll begin with verses 8 to 10. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, them being the Jewish people in the synagogue in Ephesus. Some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly publicly maligned the way. The way being, that's what they called the church, which is just the awesomest name for the church. They call it the way. I just think that's cool. Um, And so Paul leaves them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. We'll pause there. Last week, Paul had made a, a brief pit stop in the city of Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem and Antioch. That was the start of the, the, the completion of his second ministry tour and the beginning of his third. There in Ephesus, he had left Priscilla and Aquila and there he had begun his customary means of breaking evangelistic ground in every city he went to uh, by heading to the local synagogue to reason with the Jewish people there, to convince them that, that the Messiah they were waiting for has come. And in Ephesus, the Jewish synagogue was incredibly receptive to Paul's teaching, so much so that they begged him to stay and teach them more. That was kind of unusual for Paul. Usually he's being run out of these synagogues, but here they're, they're begging him to stay and teach more. But Paul had to go. So he left, but not before promising that if it was God's will, he would return to the Ephesian synagogue and continue his speaking and, and preaching. Well, guess what? Turns out it was God's will because Paul's back, baby. He's back in Ephesus. And so every Saturday, Paul would be in the synagogue boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's what it says here. That's what his message was. It was the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was a huge deal in the Gospels. When we studied Luke for two years, the kingdom of God came up over and over and over. But it's not as common a theme in the book of Acts. Only eight times is it directly referenced to in the book of Acts. Um, In Ephesus, however, it dominated Paul's teaching. It's what he focused on. Paul wanted to demonstrate how Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and glorification all proved that Jesus was the awaited Messiah. He was the one they were looking forward to. He wanted to urge the Jews in Ephesus to pledge their allegiance to this new king, and to model their lives after this powerful new kingdom that he built, based on love and grace and thanksgiving and faith. For their part, the Jewish population of Ephesus put up with it for a relatively long time. When Paul had been in Thessalonica on his second trip, three weeks of preaching in the synagogue got him kicked out by the Jewish people there. In Ephesus, they held out for three months, and then eventually devolved into a bunch of stubborn internet trolls. Ignorantly spouting off rudeness and meanness in public towards Paul, his Lord Jesus, and the way of his new kingdom. But three months is a lot better than three weeks. But the old familiar cycle was unfolding once again. Goes to the Jews first. At first they're interested. Then they get angry, kick him out. And so Paul takes his message to the Gentiles. And there, as always, it exploded in popularity as he spoke in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Yes, Tyrannus. Isn't that a cool name? Tyrannus. Tyrannus either owned the place and rented it to Paul or else he was the the guy who spoke there most common and most famously. Um, Either way, in in this sermon, we are contrasting Paul to a tyrant, Hitler. And here Paul is speaking in the hall made noteworthy by a man whose name is literally Tyrant. Um, I just think that's an interesting little connection. But like... um, like Hitler, I, I know it's dangerous to, to equate our heroes with that man in any way, but again, we're contrasting, not comparing. And so like Hitler, it was in the forum of public speaking that Paul excelled. Hitler did too. Every day Paul would proclaim Jesus to the Greeks in Ephesus, and every day these Gentiles were added to the numbers of the church, and the church exploded. It just, it grew in, in, amazing, unbelievable ways. Here's proof that Paul was this dynamic, captivating speaker. There's these, the the original authors of the New Testament wrote on papyrus scrolls. Um, But about a 100 years later, they they have found revised editions of a lot of these books, including the Book of Acts. They're called the Western Texts. And in the Western Texts, it's the same, except they add in some different details that are probably accurate, because... Um, you can keep tradition for 100 years or so. But in the Western text of Acts, not in the original text, but in the Western text, it says that Paul spoke from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. He would go to the, the Hall of Tyrannus and speak for five hours. That's amazing enough. But that meant he worked as a tent maker in the morning and in the evening when it was cool. And in the heat of the day, he would go to this this packed lecture hall and preach It's amazing because do you know what was customary for people living in ancient Mediterranean cultures at that time to do during the heat of the day? Sleep. They would be napping. They're all used to napping in the heat of the day. One book I read said that in Ephesus, you would find more people sleeping at 1 in the afternoon than you would at 1 in the morning. Uh, It's because it's cool at 1 in the morning. That's when you can go and do some work or or be social. But everybody, the city would stop from about noon to about 2 in the afternoon for siesta time. And these people, crowds of hundreds, maybe thousands, gave up their siesta time to come listen to this powerful new preacher teach about the kingdom of God. And some of you are empathizing with that right now. Some of you are wishing you could be siesta-ing, but you're sacrificing your nap time to be here today to learn about the kingdom of God. And I I, I admire you for that strength and fortitude. But that just shows what a great speaker he was. They gave up, they came at the heat of the day the time when they should be napping, to to listen. And that gift, that gift of of speaking and proclaiming, was the same gift utilized by Hitler himself. However, whereas Hitler used his passion and charisma to galvanize an entire nation's darkest fear and, and anger and racism, Paul used his passion and charisma. And by the way, the root word for charisma is grace, as in the same grace that we proclaim in Jesus. Charisma comes from that, gifts of grace. And Paul used his passion and his charisma to galvanize an entire Roman province's need for hope, redemption, and acceptance in the eyes of their creator. Like Hitler, Paul rose to prominence by the power of his public speaking, captivating an entire region. As Luke says in verse 10, after just two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, every citizen of Asia Minor had heard about the kingdom of Jesus and the salvation he offers. So here's... Ephesus here. This is Asia Minor. Luke is saying there's probably a bit of hyperbole here, but he's saying that everyone in that whole region had heard about the kingdom of God. What a powerful statement of success. The name of Jesus radiated from that central hub of Ephesus, which was the the cultural and financial center of Asia Minor. The, The name of Jesus radiated out under the powerful guidance of the Holy Spirit. For many centuries afterwards, this part of the world, what we call Turkey today, for many centuries, that part of the world was the the heart and soul. It was the center of the church. Not Jerusalem, not Alexandria, Northern Egypt, not even Rome itself. The heart of Christianity for a long time was right here in Asia Minor. And that starts with Paul's teaching in, in the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. Now, We have no written record of any of Paul's speeches during that time, but we do have some pretty fascinating accounts of powerful actions of Paul during his two-year stay in Ephesus. We're going to read about a few of them, and they are amazing stories, including what I would consider one of the most awesomely terrifying scenes in all of the New Testament, not including Revelation, because all of Revelation is terrifying. So aside from that, this is one of the one or two most terrifying little stories in the New Testament, I think. But first, before we read any of that, I want to tell you a bit about the city of Ephesus. Just a little bit. I mentioned last week that Ephesus was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Any keener want to remind us what that wonder was? It wasn't the library, that was Alexandria. It was a temple to... Anybody? Sorry? Good guess, not a Paul. Aphrodite? Not Aphrodite. A very similar name though, Artemis. So you're both... You knew it was a god or goddess that starts with an A, so I'll give you full credit. Um, One of the seven wonders of the world was this glorious, enormous temple to Artemis. And Artemis was the multi-breasted goddess of hunting, fertility, and virginity. And if that didn't wake you out of your siesta, that sentence right there, I don't know what will. But the thing that Ephesus built its reputation on wasn't hunting or fertility, the things that Artemis um, was the goddess of. It didn't share Corinth's reputation for sexual deviancy, although there was that, nor did it share Athens' reputation for philosophy, though there was that too. Instead, Ephesus was known for something else entirely, something which Paul weaves as an undercurrent to his entire letter to these people in Ephesus. The letter of Ephesians speaks of deceivers who speak deceiving words and unseen powers and principalities and mysteries and powers of Christ deception, unseen powers, and mystery. These ideas would have clicked in Ephesus, which had a reputation as ground zero in the ancient world for the practice of magic. Ephesus was like Hogwarts. It was like the center of magic uh, for, for their world. In Ephesus, you could hardly walk through the market without encountering some peddler of magic words and incantations, telling you your fortune, or claiming they could do some magical thing. These magicians kept scrolls known throughout the Roman Empire as Ephesia Grammata, which means Ephesian writings, in deference to the reputation of their namesake city. Ephesus was so famous for its magic that those who carried magical scrolls, those scrolls were called Ephesian writings. That's how famous they were. The scrolls were filled with supposedly magical formula of powerful words and incantations mixed in patterns that would maximize their, their, their power, which was maintained, the secret to that power was in the secrecy. That if you made known your magic words and your magical incantations and formula, if you showed somebody the scroll, then you were robbing it of its power. In the secrecy was its power. To reveal the source of your magic was tantamount to financial ruin for these mages and sorcerers. Such was the extent of Ephesus' connection to the occult and to magic that Shakespeare himself wrote about it in his Comedy of Errors. He describes Ephesus as a city of dark working sorcerers that change the mind, soul killing witches that deform the body, disguised cheaters, prating mountebanks. I don't know what a prating mountebank is, but it's Shakespeare, so who knows? And many such like liberties of sin. That's the reputation of Ephesus, and that, that was written 1400 years after this happens. So keep that in mind as we read our next passages you will see an undercurrent, like the the letter to the Ephesians, these stories have an undercurrent of magic to them. And they they bring to life the, the stories we're about to read. So, let's read verses 11 to 20. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken back to the sick, and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. It's pretty amazing some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the lord jesus over those who were demon possessed they would say in the name of jesus whom paul preaches i command you to come out seven sons of siva or skiva a jewish chief priest were doing this one day the evil spirit answered them jesus i know and i know about paul who are you I, that, that is such no horror movie could write a more killer line than that Get out of here in the name of Jesus. Now, hold on, the demon says. I know Jesus. And I know about Paul. I don't know who you are. And here's what happens after. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, Sceva and his sons, and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This passage begins by very bluntly, very clearly emphasizing where all of this tremendous power was coming from. And it's not Paul. Rather, it was God doing extraordinary things through Paul. That's what it says in verse 11. God did extraordinary things through Paul. Paul was the conduit. Paul was not the current itself. He was just the means through which the current, the saving power, was channeled. But in a magic obsessed city like Ephesus, you can see how the power manifesting itself through Paul would make quite a splash. All these different magicians peddling all their magic and their sorcery. And here's this tent maker who was able to call out demons and heal the sick with just a sweaty headband. So, yeah, Paul's name became famous in Ephesus. These are three mini-stories. The miraculous healings of Paul, the demonic beatdown of the seven sons of Sceva, and the subsequent burning of the magical scrolls. Three mini-stories. I'll talk briefly about each one and contrast the power seen in these stories to the power represented by Hitler's rise in the Third Reich. First, consider um, the healings, the the miraculous healings. Consider who was being healed by Paul and by Jesus in these stories. Who, Who was the beneficiaries of these miracles? The poor, right? The poor. In Nazi Germany, depending on your ethnic or political background, being weak, sick, or marginalized was a death sentence. Hitler used his power to bring death to the unwanted people within his realm. But look at our powerful King Jesus. He goes so far out of his way to show compassion and acceptance to the weak, sick, and marginalized that he needs only a mere handkerchief to heal them completely. It takes just a handkerchief. That's how much he wants to show love to the marginalized people. To Jesus, they are not human garbage worthy of a zoo-like ghetto or a bullet to the head or gas in a chamber. They are beautiful creatures worthy of salvation and inclusion in the eternal life of God's kingdom. Couldn't be more opposite. How Nazi Germany treated the unwanted, how the kingdom of God treats the unwanted. Similar to Jesus, uh, there's a story of of Jesus, there's this woman who's constantly bleeding, constantly some kind of menstrual issue, and she just merely touches the hem of Jesus' robe in secret in a huge crowd, she knows that he's so powerful that if she just touches the hem of his robe, she will be healed. And that's what she does. And that's what happens. She's healed. But Jesus feels the healing power go out of him and says, who touched me? The disciples are like, everyone's touching you. We're this crushing crowd. But he singles out this woman to redeem her and say, woman, you've been healed because you had such faith. And this is a very similar story. Somebody small, a bunch of, not just one person, many small to society insignificant people know the healing power because they have faith in Jesus. There's another story in Acts as well, in Acts 5.15. Peter it has the same kind of healing power so much so that people just want to be in his shadow. They know that if they're just in his shadow, they will be healed. Acts 19 is further proof of the healing power of God's love, how much he loves the unwanted and the marginalized. Paul, working hard as a tent maker all morning and evening, would be drenched in sweat by the Mediterranean sun. And because he's working, he can't leave to go and just heal whoever needs healing. So what he does is he takes off, like I mentioned, his sweaty headband or his filthy apron, and he passes that to Priscilla or Aquila or whoever, and they deliver it to the one who needs healing. And just by touching that which had touched Paul, who has such faith, they are healed. Paul knew, however, that he was not the one doing the healing. He was not the one capable of redeeming these people. It was the power of the Holy Spirit within him who was doing that healing. Paul, there's nothing magical about Paul. There's nothing magical about his disgusting, sweaty headband. It's not like his sweat had healing properties. It's that he had faith enough to know that if I entrust this to the hands of God, healing will come. And the ones who received that disgusting, sweaty headband had faith enough to know that because this man had such faith, they can have such faith and they can be healed because of the God who is represented in this whole process. There's nothing special about Paul. There's nothing special about his aprons or his headbands. There is something special about the faith of Paul and the ones who receive it. That's what's special. With humility in heart and humility in the tool he uses, it's just a headband. He would take it off and give it to a person in need. It was that act of faith that healed people. The giver and receiver trusting the power of a God who uses humble things to bring him glory. Humble things like a filthy pair of ancient car hearts. (laughs) Take this dirty thing and that's what will heal you. And humble things like a sweaty, balding, bow-legged tent maker who knows the limitless power of his risen king. A king who uses his limitless power to lift up the marginalized and bring them life, not crush them down and bring them death, as is true of so many people in power in human kingdoms. So that's the first story. Next comes the fantastic story of the seven sons of Skiva. The contrast to Hitler here is found in the use of violence. Violence was how Hitler enforced his power. That is not true in the kingdom of God. Paul commits no violence. He used to commit violence, thinking he was serving God, but he, after he meets Jesus and is shown the light, he, he is not a violent man ever again. He rejects violence completely. In fact, his other letters especially the letters 1 Corinthians, seem to suggest that he was the victim of violence even in these relatively peaceful two years in Ephesus. He calls the people of Ephesus in 1 Corinthians a bunch of wild beasts because of how they treated him. And he talks about being in prison, likely in Ephesus. So even in a time of peace, he still endures great violence to his person. So it's not Paul committing violence. Paul, Paul is always the receiver of violence. In Acts 19, the only violence is carried out by an evil spirit demonstrating, demonstrating the horrifying power of one who knows Jesus, because the demons all know Jesus, but who reject Jesus, choosing instead to punish others for their insincere use of his powerful name. There's no violence done by God's people. There's violence done to God's people. Violence has no place in the kingdom of God because all violence is an act of dehumanization. Anytime you commit violence to anyone, and that can be um, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, any kind of abuse is an act of dehumanization. You are stripping away what makes them human for your own benefit. Violence has no place among God's people. Violence should be found only among those who reject God, like the demon possessing this man, like the sons of Sceva, um, it should be found only among those who reject God and who are obsessed with shoring up earthly power for themselves. Hitler being a chief example. But let's look at the receiving end of that violence. skiva was a magician using the title Jewish chief priest to bump up his street cred. He was no high priest. He just called himself high priest because to the magicians, the, the Jewish people, they were like especially magical because they believed in a God who could do especially magical things. And so some of these Some of these scrolls that they used for their magic, they have survived to this day. And we have them. They're in museums and they're in universities that are studied. And on these scrolls, we see many, many names in the Old Testament Bible, or in the the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Names like Abraham keep popping up. Elijah keeps popping up. Men who did tremendous things through the power of God within them. But these magicians see that, they think that they are the powerful ones. And so they invoke the names of Abraham and Elijah. And even the name that was not to ever be spoken, the name that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush, what we, we pronounce as Yahweh, nobody's really sure how to pronounce it because nobody was ever supposed to say that name. But that name shows up all over the place in these magic scrolls because magical, powerful things were done through that name. Um, and so it makes sense because if the stories of the Hebrew God are true, the magicians would want to tie their wagon to his chariot if he's that powerful. And so when Paul is perceived as performing mighty magic in the name of Jesus, Skeva decides to add that name to his repertoire. The name of Jesus, just another name to add to the list. And that was a bad decision. Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard of, but who do you think you are? That's got to be one of the most terrifying responses any human has ever heard from the lips of another human. But, as is true today, even the most evil creatures in existence recognize false goodness when they see it. Stephen and his boys, they were casually tossing around the name of Jesus, not recognizing that faith in his name was what unlocked its power, not just the name itself. It's faith in that name that unlocks the power, and not for selfish reasons, not for profit or fame, but for the glory of the one who has given his son that saving name in the first place. The reason these great things are done in the name of Jesus is, yeah, to save people, but more importantly, to bring glory to God. That's the most important reason why this, this name is so powerful. They learned this lesson the hard way, that violence is a tool of evil and judgment will come on those who misuse or misappropriate the saving name of Jesus the Messiah. And that brings us to the third and final mini-story, the burning of the scrolls. On the surface, this looks more like a comparison to Nazi Germany than a contrast. It looks like exactly the same thing as the Nazis did. Literature, perceived as evil and antithetical to the purposes of those in power, are burned and destroyed. So very similar but there's a massive difference between the two. In 1933, as an act of propaganda, the German um, Student Union proclaimed a purge against literature deemed an affront to Nazi ideals of purity. So any book or tract or, or piece of literature in any way that propagated pacifism, communism, Jewishness, liberality, democracy, sex for pleasure, philosophy or science contradictory to official Nazi beliefs, which included Darwin, uh, or any literature, historical or satirical, that painted Germany in a bad light. Anything that would make, anything the Nazis disagreed with in any way, all of it was burned in several separate events during the spring of 1933. And I'm talking tens of thousands of, of books at a time. Entire libraries, entire university libraries were gutted against their will and burned on the spot. There had been book burnings in Germany in the past, most famously by Martin Luther himself, who burned a lot of the Pope's writings. But he burned one, and it was symbolic. He didn't want to get rid of it. He wanted to show the evil of it. The Nazis, they wanted to just absolutely wipe them off the face of the earth. And the works were not offered up voluntarily. It was a purge. They marched into these places, confiscated them, and burned them. Some organizations' entire contents went up in smoke in one night, in a vile act of historical and cultural cleansing. Contrast this to Acts 19, what we just read, where the biggest difference is the voluntary act of submission to the powerful kingship of Christ, represented by the burning of scrolls. I mentioned earlier that the power of the scrolls was in their secret nature, that the magicians wouldn't reveal the contents of their their scrolls. Well, verse 18 mentions how many former magicians came and confessed what they had done, which meant they spoke the contents of their false magic. They stripped their own supposed magic of its power completely by confessing what was in them. They revealed them for the powerlessness that they contained. They voluntarily made them worthless by confessing their powerless secrets. And then they burned them, which was an act of repentance. It was like a baptism. It was the death of their old life marked by this fake magic which was obsessed with inauthentic power and they were raised to a new life of following the the king of true power who was himself raised back to life as the son of God. The total cost of all the scrolls came to 50,000 drachmas. That may not mean, it didn't mean anything to me when I read it. I assumed it was lots. But one drachma was a day's wage. 50,000 drachmas. I did some math. I'm not real good at math so... You can double-check this when you get home, but since one drachma is an average man's day's wage, these scrolls were worth more than what eight men working six days a week for 20 years would make. Eight men working six days a week for 20 years. In today's money, that works out to about $8.55 million. That was the value of all these scrolls burned on the spot. Burned up, actually, as an act of sacrifice the saving power of Jesus Christ. They knew there was no power in this anymore. That's garbage. Burn it. It's worthless. It means less than nothing. Instead, they found the thing that has real power, the saving name of Jesus. And that's the difference between Ephesus in 52 AD and Berlin in 1933 AD. Voluntary submission to real power as opposed to forced destruction for the sake of corrupted power. They chose to do this as an act of worship to say, this is not, this is not any kind of power. We want real power in you, Jesus. And that's the point of this whole exercise this morning. I know it's treacherous to compare a Christian hero to Hitler. Trust me, I know. Stay tuned next week when I link Apostle Peter to Joseph Goebbels. I will not do that. But I want us to compare human power to heavenly power to see for ourselves which is greater, which is true. Human power is a corrupting agency. It doesn't take much power, and I mean, there are more examples of this than we could possibly name of just a little bit of power going completely to someone's head and then just getting totally corrupted by it. Because human power is a corrupting agency. It leads us to dehumanize others and crush them while arrogantly supplanting our own king and creator on the throne with ourselves. So get out of here, Jesus. I'm the king because I have power. Human power is often attained through false pretenses and leads to violence against those with no power. For example, Hitler blaming the Jews, or Trump ripping immigrant children away from their parents, or Skiva muttering names in a supposedly magical pattern and getting beaten to a pulp for it. People who think they have power, lording it over people who have no power. And human power denounces truth, even going so far as to burn it to the ground out of sheer arrogance and ignorance. So that's what human power looks like. But in the kingdom of God, power is different. Power is found in lowly things, like a humble tent maker with a gift for speaking powerful truth, or sweaty headbands giving and given and received in powerful faith, or burning down something that has been holding us back for following God as our king. Those are small, humble things, but in them there is tremendous power and tremendous value. In the kingdom, power is used to demonstrate compassion and grace and love to those who are on society's margins. To anyone, really, but specifically to those on the margins. Those who are left uncared for by the crushing feet of society's powerful elite. Our kingdom may look like magic. These stories may look like magic, but it's not magic. It just seems that way compared to the ugliness and ignorance and violence and corruption of a world hell-bent on obtaining power for itself. The kingdom of God doesn't look anything like that. The kingdom of God... I want to be cheesy and say is heaven-bent. That's too cheesy, so I won't say it. The the kingdom of heaven is, is determined to use power to give glory to God, not to self. Faith, like Paul's, is not magical. It's simple and it's humble, but it's powerful. It simply acknowledges God as God and us as servant. So let go of your power, and cling instead to the name that is more powerful than any other name, more powerful than any tyrannical dictator in human history. That is the saving name of Jesus, our Christ and King, which as Paul wrote to the Philippians, the name of Jesus, all knees in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That is the name that has all power. It's not some tyrant, it's not any human at all, it's what makes our kingdom powerful it's the name of jesus christ so again that exercise in contrasting the nazis to the kingdom of god is not to compare paul it's to show what human power looks like at the far end of the evil spectrum and what the kingdom of god can look like on not even the far end just the normal end of the spectrum for the kingdom of god what faith can the power of simple humble faith um, the power of faith that serves others and is dedicated to the glory of God rather than serving ourselves and is dedicated to the glory of ourself. It's tremendously powerful. Let's pray. Jesus, in your name, we know there's tremendous power. It's a beautiful name, it's a blessed name, and it's a joy and an honor and a privilege to be people who share that name with you. Thank you for giving your name to us. In all of these stories, we don't see magic. Father, we see you. We see your power. We see your goodness at work. And we see your goodness at work among simple people, humble people, um, marginalized people. And we strive for that power as well. Holy Spirit, we know that you are the source of that power in us. We praise you for that. And I pray that we would be a people of power. Not power like the world sees it, but power as you see it, Jesus, in your kingdom. The power of faith, the power of grace, the power of love and forgiveness. Help us to be people marked by that kind of power to go out into the world and demonstrate that kind of power to people who need it. Help us to be fueled by you to do so. We love you, and we, we, we know that in you there is great power, Jesus, and in your name. So we give praise to that name together. Amen. that's probably enough Nazi talk for a while. So have a great week.